Friends, today we continue in our sermon series on women of the Hebrew Scriptures, and today is yet another really sparkling and challenging, tough story. So I invite us to listen to the story of Tamar, a story that we don't often hear preached in worship. I went through the lectionary cycles for the three years, and it's not listed. And you might discover why if you don't know the story of Tamar. So just for some context, today's passage is from the 38th chapter of Genesis, which introduces us to Tamar. Now in the South, I always called her Tamar. But in seminary, I learned that I was always putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. So if I catch myself saying Tamar or Tamar, it's the same person, but habits die hard. So in Genesis, the story of Tamar is a weird little interlude at the very start of the Joseph narrative. We all know who Joseph is, right? The coat of many colors with all the brothers. So the way this story is inserted, it creates tension. It serves as a cliffhanger, if you will, for what is happening with Joseph. In chapter 37, the story of God's people shifts in full effect from Isaac, the child of Abraham and Sarah, to his son, Jacob, and to Isaac's grandchildren. To be real... This is not a great introduction to Isaac's descendants. The behavior of Jacob's sons does not inspire hope for the future of God's people. They are jealous of Joseph's coat of many colors. Joseph is... hmm, What's a good word that's appropriate? He's kind of a jerk, kind of rubs it in their faces of, oh, I got this... Nice code. I'm dad's favorite. So these brothers take the brotherly torture that all of us who have brothers know all too well a little too far when they throw him into a pit and want to leave him to die. So Judah, the oldest of the brothers, is motivated by greed and says, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Really stellar introduction to these descendants of Isaac. So that is exactly what happens. Joseph, with his wonderful coat stripped from him, is sold into slavery. And then we pick up a whole new story, leaving God's people wondering, like a classic sitcom at the end of a series, what's going to happen next? But that's where this story comes into play. That tension leads right into chapter 38, verses 1 through 26. And here we follow Judah, the oldest of the brothers, the one who convinced everyone to sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him. I mean, I guess that's a little better. So, here, Judah moves away from his family to settle and begin his own family. So before I read the text, I just want to say that 
This is a shocking passage depicting very human events, very human acts, and very human motives. I have tried to tame some of the language down so it's not so graphic, but it is safe to say that this is a story that could get banned in Florida if it weren't in the Bible. So, friends, let us listen for God's word speaking to us this day from Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 26. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Great name. Again, she conceived and bore a son who she named Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Chezib when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Provide children for your brother. But since Onan knew that the children would not be his, whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What Onan did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For Judah feared that Shelah too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time had passed, the wife of Judah died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up and sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is the road, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me lie with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may lie with me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? 
And she replied, your signet, your cord, and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and lay with her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adolamite to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, where is the temple prostitute who is at a name by the wayside? But they said, no prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. Otherwise, we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid and you could not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been an adulterer. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of adultery. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, which really should be pronounced Shelah, sorry. And he did not lie with her again. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know about you, but for me, this story of Tamar in the 38th chapter of Genesis is definitely one of those scripture passages where our response of thanks be to God feels more like a question. Thanks be to God? Are we thankful for these words? For this tough story? Are we thankful the authors are telling us this story about unjust systems that demonstrate the privilege of patriarchy and the powerlessness of womanhood in biblical times? It's important for me to remember that stories like this are included for a reason, and that those who wrote these stories told them in the way they are captured for a reason. So while I don't claim to have all the answers, I invite us together to see what we can learn about God and God's people from the way this story is told and captured in the book of Genesis. So, Judah leaves his family of birth to go hang out with his buddy, Hira the Adulamite. Did you catch that? 
he left his family to go hang out with this Adulamite named Hira, who, I get the sense, becomes Judah's wingman. I imagine that Judah and Hira are hanging out, these unruly young adults who are just looking to see what's up. When Judah sees and then marries what is described as the daughter of a certain Canaanite named Shua. So from the very start of this passage, it just feels off to me. It feels like an example of the worst kind of toxic masculinity. The women are only referenced in relation to the men responsible for them. And those men don't really appear to have a lot of redeeming characteristics. Sorry, guys, it's not all of us. I just feel like that's the way this story is told. The only woman who is named in this passage is Tamar. Judah has three sons. Ur, which just sort of feels like a pause as you're trying to figure out what to say next. Onan. And the much younger, the text wants to make it clear, Shelah. Judah marries Ur to Tamar. And not long after they are married, Ur dies. The text tells us that Ur was not a good guy. In fact, the text says he was wicked, so the Lord put him to death. Now, I'm going to claim that that is a topic that probably we should talk about sometime, but I'm going to put that for whoever comes after me and focus on the rest of the story. Based on this description of Ur, I'm guessing that married life has not been great for Tamar. But with his death, life actually gets worse for her. It gets more complicated for her. You see, they had no children, and definitely no male children that we are told about, so the custom of Leverite marriage would have been enacted. If you don't know what this practice is, what happens is the oldest brother of a deceased man would marry his sister-in-law in order to produce male heirs for his brother. So the family line would continue. In these times, a woman's purpose was to produce an heir. Without children, and specifically without a son, a widow's place in society was very risky. She was in danger. Without children, what was her purpose? And how invested was a family in caring for her, even though that she was betrothed to the family? In a just society, the practice of Leverite marriage was meant to ensure the dead man's family line would continue. But in a just society, it was also to protect the widow, to make sure that This woman was protected by the family that a way forward was enacted for her. It doesn't make sense to probably most of us here, but in biblical times, that was the purpose of this custom and law. So, in Tamar's time of grief, 
for her dead husband, she is married off to her then brother-in-law, Onan. And y'all, he is not any better than her. Omar proceeds to use poor Tamar to satisfy his own needs. But he does not honor the intent of Leverite marriage. He does not do what is necessary to produce an heir with Tamar. The text says he does this because he knows the heir will not be his, but rather would be considered Ur's, his older brother's. So poor Tamar is caught in competing societal priorities here. We have the practice of Leverite marriage, but also at play in her life is inheritance in the customs surrounding inheritance. At this time, the vast majority of the patriarch's possessions, Judah's possessions, would be passed down to the oldest son and to his offspring. The rest of the sons or family members of Judah would get a much smaller portion. So when Judah would have died, the vast majority of everything that he had would end up going to the son that Onan created with Tamar but it would not be considered his son. So the child that he produced would get a bigger slice of his father's inheritance than he himself and his actual children would get. Does that make sense? Do you feel the tension there? So I imagine that this is what is driving Onan to act so selfishly. He probably wasn't a great guy to start with, but I think this inheritance issue is really at work in his mind and in his heart and in his spirit and leads him to abuse Tamar in this way. I think he wants that inheritance for himself. He wants to be the oldest son. But whatever the reason... The text tells us that God was not pleased, and so Onan exits stage left. Once again, Tamar is left in a precarious situation. What is going to happen to her now? The youngest brother, the text tells us, is still quite young and had some growing up to do before he would be Eligible, old enough, if you will, to be married. What will her father-in-law do to ensure that she is cared for? And then you have Judah. Judah does not want Tamar to marry his youngest. He has moved past the concern for his son's lines to continue to be propagated. He is now concerned about his very own. When the story started, he had three sons. He was set up for a good line to continue on into the future. He now has one son left. And from his point of view, everyone that marries Tamar dies. 
He doesn't reflect on his son's part in that story. In his mind, she is a black widow. Everyone that marries her dies. She has to go. So he sends Tamar home, home to her people. Let them take care of her. Let her live with her family. Let her remain in widow's garb for as long as it takes. Let her be constrained by societal expectations that will not apply to Judah's family. But that time when she was supposed to be married to Shalah never seems to come. He never seems to be old enough. Tamar is left alone and childless in her father's house, while Judah's family continues to move forward. That is until tragedy strikes again in Judah's home. And his wife, the daughter of a certain Canaanite, we never know Judah's wife's name, dies. Now Judah does what is expected. He puts on the mourning garb for the expected amount of time. He observes that traditional time period. But then he takes off that mourning garb as soon as it is allowable as soon as it is socially acceptable, and he gets right back to his old ways with a Dulamite named Hira, his wingman. Tamar apparently had friends in Judah's household because she has been keeping tabs on what has been happening. Did you hear it in the text? She was told that he had taken off the garb and was going to the sheep shearers. She knew. She had the measure of the man. So she decides that it's time to take matters into her own hands. In the commentaries, there's a lot of discussion about whether what she does is right or wrong. But she's had enough. The systems that were set up to protect her, to ensure a way forward for her, were not being honored. So this woman who has been dressed in her own mourning garb for years, after the death of two husbands, hears this news and decides to take action. Judah, Hurrah, and Shelah, the youngest son, set out on the road to bring Judah's sheep to the sheep shearers. On the way, they come to a name. A name is an easily overlooked dot on the map between slightly bigger places. I like to imagine it like Ada, Ohio, where my daughter is in school. There is nothing, nothing there. You just sort of drive right through it. A name, Ada. Hopefully Anna won't watch this and know that I'm talking smack about her town. But it's the same. People drive through it. People keep going. It is a dot in between two bigger places. 
But y'all, a lot happens in between places, as we see in the text. People might feel more freedom when they might not be recognized, if you will. And what happens next there in a name says a lot about both Tamar and Judah. Tamar knows the quality of Judah's character, knows that if he sees an opportunity with a particular kind of woman while on the road, that he won't hesitate to make his move. And she's 100% correct. It's important to note that Tamar takes off her widow's garments in order to make this plan happen, y'all. That detail is significant. While Judah and his family have been living their lives, have been moving forward, have been sheltering Shalah, Tamar has remained in mourning. She has been living in the shadow of the death of two really bad husbands for years. She has remained faithful to the promises and expectations of her father-in-law while he has been living as if he has forgotten she exists. As she takes off that widow's garment, she sets in motion a plan to right the wrongs that have been done to her by taking what is hers and exposing Judah's injustice and faithlessness. On the other hand, Judah doesn't even question who the woman is. He doesn't even try to take off the veil to see her face. And if he did, would he have even recognized his daughter-in-law's face? He never once thinks about his daughter-in-law. Instead, he takes what he wants, and in order to do that, he hands over those items that are most dear to him, his signet, his staff, and the cord around his waist, items that literally symbolize his stature and his household. Just gives them over capriciously, without a thought in the world. Three months later, when Judah hears rumors that Tamar is pregnant, he is furious that she has sinned against him and against her family. It is his chance, he thinks, to get rid of her and to be out of this situation. He does not once reflect on the fact that he has not provided for her And he certainly does not give one thought to his own activity on that roadside. Instead, he calls for her to be brought to him and burned alive, having kept this secret for months. As she felt the flutters of first life growing in her belly, Tamar finally comes forward with the truth and the proof. And as my kids would say, she has the receipts. 
She tells Judah, these babies within me are children of the house of Judah. In fact, they are your children, for they belong to the owner of these items, the very items that Judah turned over. Judah's anger and his hypocrisy collide in that single moment. He is being held accountable by the one person who has been faithful to him. By the one person who has been faithful to his family. By the one person who has been subjected to injustice at his very hands and yet who acted honestly, honorably, and justly. Was it a hundred percent right? Probably not. But did she do what needed to be done? Yes. And y'all, through Tamar, God works transformation in Judah. It's sort of just glossed over. But I imagine it's a moment for him. A big moment where he has a, oh, a realization, a mirror is held up to him where he can see what his life has become. As she produces his signet, his staff, and the cord that goes around his waist, he is forced to recognize his own selfish behavior. And in so doing, Tamar moves Judah and his descendants to reflect the redemptive love of God. Later on in this story, we find out that it is through the offspring of Tamar and Judah, she has twins, that God moves in the world to bring forth good King David to rule over Israel. This abused and neglected woman is named as an ancestor to Jesus in the genealogy that is included in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. That genealogy doesn't list a lot of women. Tamar, the first woman to be named. Why is that? It's because Tamar does not lose sight of what is good and just. She does not lose sight of what God intends for all people And she does not lose faith in God's chosen people. She knows the family into which she has married. She knows the covenant that rests upon them. And she acts to move them more into line with God's intentions for creation. She takes action to right the wrongs that have been done to her so that God's righteousness can be known in the world. And her descendants, King David and Jesus, act in the very same way. They act in the world to right the wrongs of injustice that are present. And they make known the glory of God. Friends, may we be so bold. May we be so bold to see the injustice that is active in the world around us. 
May we be so bold to make our own stand. I don't encourage in the same way as Tamar. But may we be so bold to make our own stand to say what is right and to create change and to right the wrongs of injustice that happen each and every day to our families, to our communities, to people that we know and people that we don't see. May we be so bold that when we act like Judah, to let go of our selfishness and to recognize where we are needed to right the wrongs that we have caused. May we be so bold to join together to bring about justice and equity in the world so that all of God's children everywhere may know the grace and the love of God active in their life this day and every day. Amen.